Hello, everyone. My name is Dalton Burdett of The Movie Nights, and thank you so much for tuning in. If you're listening to this, it's because you want to hear my uncensored and unfiltered thoughts and opinions about the world of movies. But today is not even about me. Ladies and gentlemen, I have two very special guests with me. They are the co-directors of the upcoming documentary film, The Orange Years, about the amazing heydays and the beginnings of Nickelodeon. And for people of my generation, I know that is going to be a huge, huge thing for them and very nostalgic, very awesome. So please welcome to the show, Mr. Uh, Scott Barker and Adam Sweeney. Go ahead and introduce yourself, guys. It's, first of all, thank you for having us. It's a pleasure uh, to be here. Uh, I'm Scott Barber, one of the co-directors, co-writers uh, of The Orange Years. And I'm Adam Sweeney and the other co-director and co-writer of The Orange Years. Awesome. Uh, sorry, Barber, I did the wrong last name there. Sorry about no that. No problem. Uh, so basically, uh, my, my first question kind of just stems, you know, first of all, documentaries, let alone documentary feature films, are such a huge task to undertake. Like, uh, no part of any, any making any film is easy, but documentary films are a whole other monster. And, you know, when you're making a documentary, you really have to be passionate about the thing of what you're doing, because when you watch a documentary where the filmmakers aren't passionate about their subject, it, it bleeds right through the screen and the audience can easily tell. But, you know, from every conversation I've had with you guys, you guys are very obviously passionate about this story. So my first question really is, what compelled you to want to tell this story? Like, what, well, what was the, you know, you know, fuel behind the fire into you having to tell the story? Well, Adam and I had worked on some projects in the past. Uh, we had written some scripts and just tried to sell them and try to get some people excited about them. And we had great experiences, but w some of them were also somewhat frustrating. <laughs> so we said, how can we make uh, a film ourselves and kind of take our career and our futures into our own hands? And documentary filmmaking was something that uh, kind of presented itself to us. Uh, we had also worked on some uh, smaller documentary projects for our day jobs. We had worked together. We'd gotten the opportunity to work together in that capacity. So we said, what about a, what about a documentary? And we had some ideas that we were kicking around. And uh, like you said, it, it, it needed to be something that we were passionate about, something that we knew about, and also something that we knew other people would be passionate about. And Nickelodeon came up in those conversations. And um, that was something that we just thought would be a really cool idea for a doc, but we were kind of like, is there a story there? You know, because if there's no story there and it's just a nostalgia trip, a walk down memory lane, that's just going to be like, like, there's going to be no substance. It's going to have no legs. So once we started doing some research uh, and we found out about uh, Geraldine Laybourne, and she was the president of Nickelodeon in the 80s and 90s. And she's just an absolute trailblazer, world changer, visionary. And once we found out about her and all the crazy out of the box stuff that they did, we knew that there was a story there. So we knew we had something that people would like. And we also knew something, we had something that we could tell a compelling story with elements that people didn't already know. Yeah, and I think that the Nickelodeon story really is something that we've been passionate about since we were little. And for a lot of people, I think also, you know, Scott and I were friends since, gosh, the early 90s. We knew each other a little bit before that, uh, and we were in the same classes together. 
and we both came from uh, households of divorce. And one of the ways that we ended up staying friends to, together was that we would watch Are You Afraid of the Dark and some of the Nickelodeon shows after I'd moved away. And we would just be on the phone and we would talk to each other all the time. And it was really cool and a really formative part of our, our lives. And so I, I think that you're absolutely right, uh, Dalton, whenever you say that if you love something uh, and you, you know, you're always told write or tell the story that you know. And so if you love something and you're passionate about it, I think it bleeds through. I think you're absolutely right that you can tell whenever people are putting their heart and soul into it. It's like watching like Dave Filoni or John Favreau whenever they're making The Mandalorian. You can just tell that they pay attention and they care about these characters and they care about the universe. And so it, it was something that shaped who we were. And uh, so it was, it was easy for us to, to move into that and to get more interested, yeah. especially whenever it got hard, because you're right, dom documentary filmmaking and any filmmaking or any type of storytelling is a challenge. And so you're going to hit hiccups and there are going to be uh, some, some growing pains there. But uh, we, we were lucky because we got to tell an amazing story and we also got to do it together. And that's a blessing. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And, um, you know, going back to what you said of just, you know, you guys kind of bonding over, you know, similar childhoods, you know, both being children of divorce and just sort of bonding over these Nickelodeon shows and just the Nickelodeon story. It really is a testament to the power that these kind of shows had on children, because uh, in the trailer for you guys' documentary, you know, uh, somebody mentions that this was kind of the not competitor, but the alternative to kind of Disney Channel and that it was a way where it's children's programming but also understood, you know, what kids like, you know, kids like to feel like they're getting away with something when they're watching stuff. Mm -hmm. And also in the trailer it mentions people saying like, we kind of couldn't believe we were getting away with some of the stuff we got away with. But when you have the, that kind of thing in the shows you're watching, it's something that you talk to your friends about, you know, when you're younger, it's something that you're like, oh, like my mom said I could watch this and they did that on the show. Can you believe that? And, you know, that, that being able to sort of tell the origins and history of that story, I personally think is really fascinating. And it's just another one of the reasons why I'm excited to see your guys' documentary. And uh, with that being said, right off the top, before we even get into anything else, gotta, I got to do it. What is each of your favorite Nickelodeon shows from the so-called Orange Years? You, what were the best ones? You got to tell me. Um, <clears throat> I think I know what Adam is going to pick. So I'm going to go for a different one so that we can give love. We, I mean, we, we have such similar tastes. Uh, so I'll say Pete and Pete. That show is just so subversive and so weird. And it, you can tell it really shaped a lot of people's like style. You know, that was, you look at all the musical guests that were on there, Iggy Pop, Michael Stipe, Gordon Gano, uh, David Johansson of the New York Dolls. I mean, that was uh, Steve Buscemi, who's not a musician, but a, definitely has that cool factor like a musician. That was so many people's like early introduction to stuff like that, you know? And I think the reason why I, uh, I, I ended up liking things like Wes Anderson and also why I ended up liking things like Twin Peaks and David Lynch probably came from being exposed to Pete and Pete as a little kid. Yeah, uh, I think the, the two, our two favorite ones definitely would, you know, we would just alternate back and forth. So P the adventure of Pete and Pete, absolutely. And then Are You Afraid of the Dark is an, an all-timer. 
you know, I still think it, it'd be cool to have a group together just telling ghost stories. Like even as, you know, yeah. I mean, as, as, as adults, I hope that eventually there was a miniseries that came back, right. Which was awesome. Uh, I think it was Ben David Grabensky made it and he's an amazing filmmaker, but are you afraid of the dark was so cool. And, and you talk about the, the idea of really quickly, the anti Disney, you know, Nickelodeon was the anti Disney a little bit, you know, Nickelodeon was on cable and Disney was a premium channel. And I think that that made a big difference to a mm -hmm. lot of people. Had Disney been available to everybody, maybe we would have gravitated a little bit more over there. But I also feel like it was very polished, not, not as a, you know, a, a criticism, but I didn't necessarily, I don't think that any of us felt like we could really relate or connect to, you know, I, I know for a fact, like I never felt like I was the next Ryan Gosling. Right. right. But whenever I watch like Salute Your Shorts or Pete and Pete or, you know, uh, the Midnight Society, Are You Afraid of the Dark? I thought maybe there would be a chance that I could hang out with them. And if at the very least I, I could understand what they were going through. Yeah, you you definitely look at that in retrospect. Like as a kid, I didn't think of it as like Disney versus Nick. You know, that never crossed my mind when I was like 10 years old. But when you go back and look at it now, you're like, wow, they really were night and day, the way they approach things was completely different. Yeah, you know, it, it's really fascinating to see and, you know, hear about. And so the, thank you for telling me the favorite shows. I, I would have hated it if I would have saved that for the end, because like, I know as soon as I start this, people are gonna be like, all right, so what's their favorite show? So but what's, what's your, yours? What's, what's your favorite? Yeah, what's your favorite? <sighs> Interesting. I, not necessarily from like right in the beginning of Nickelodeon. Yeah. But um, I obviously was a huge SpongeBob fan. Cool. Oh. And, and it, was, it was one of those things where like I had to like watch it like when my mom didn't know I was watching it. And because uh, I don't know, for whatever reason at the time, like SpongeBob, like for certain like new parents at the time was just like, you know, all these articles, just these dumb things about like why your kids shouldn't watch SpongeBob. And, yeah. Uh, but I always snuck around to watching it. And, uh, you know, it still has an impact. Like people my age, my generation, we still talk about the SpongeBob, the first SpongeBob SquarePants movie. Like, yeah. and, and that was like way after we had first started watching SpongeBob. But like, that was such like a cultural moment, like for my generation, for anyone who grew up with SpongeBob, like that first SpongeBob SquarePants movie was just like, this is everything we've ever wanted. Like, thank thank the movie gods for this happening and it was just such this interesting fun thing so yeah mine was definitely i was a big big spongebob kid yeah because i mean you get to see it on the big screen right and that mm -hmm. yeah. that i mean that elevates like that's that's a game changer right mm -hmm. i mean i think for a lot of people like with rugrats that's how it was like the rugrats movie when it came out you know so yeah. and spongebob you're you're right it's 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 really interesting how like there always seem to be these cultural like phenomenons that happen like the simpsons harry potter spongebob squarepants where parents or i don't think it's parents i think that it's somehow media just tries to make a story and they're like this is gonna turn your kids into mm -hmm. satan worshipers and it's like really it's like like because of a Krabby Patty, like, come on, come like on. it's pretty ridiculous. So no, that's yeah. a great, that's a great choice. Yeah. And you mentioned Rugrats too. I loved Rugrats and I remember, Oh, what show did they cross over? Cause I remember like when I was a kid, 
was it the wild thornberries like there was a mm. thing where like the rugrat no it might have been that there was a show where like rugrats was crossing over with another show and okay. when it when it did it was like this huge thing when i was a kid they were and, kind of like a precursor to like the marvel cinematic universe <laughs> the big, yeah Nickelodeon universe crossover yeah yeah and like and because i and also just speaking of rugrats like i remember i loved rugrats and then they tried to do uh rugrats all grown up yeah and it yeah. like it wasn't like the it wasn't like the worst but it was just like it they they it was a nice try but it just like yeah. didn't quite have that same magic that rugrats had that's one thing that they talk about uh that a lot of the creators talk to us about in the movie is you know, not everything's going to be a home run and it shouldn't be. If, if everything is a home run, that means you're probably not taking any risks, you know? And, and, exactly. and so I respect them for taking risks. And yeah, there were some shows that like didn't go over really well, you know, and it, or it wasn't, it didn't live up to its potential, but you know, you, you could tell they were, they were constantly trying. And, you know, you talk about SpongeBob, that's really, in a lot of ways, our, our, our documentary is like the journey to SpongeBob. Cause you know, in our opinion, you know, SpongeBob, well, not our opinion. I mean, it's just the way that it is. Once Nickelodeon reached SpongeBob, they were a bona fide juggernaut. Okay. They, they were equal to anybody else. You ask a little kid, you show them a picture of Mickey Mouse and SpongeBob, and they're probably gonna be able to recognize SpongeBob even more. And how did we get there? You know, and a lot of times SpongeBob gets a bad rap from older people, but spongebob came from the same pure place that rugrats doug ren and stimpy they were just trying to make something different and weird and the other shows connected with kids but for whatever reason that show like really kids just went nuts for it you can i mean you see it to this it's been on for like decades at this point it's Mm -hmm. still going strong yeah yeah and you know who can forget like the horrific image of like that ice cream spongebob that like melted demon is always just like even like if you didn't watch the show you were just terrified of that as a child Mm -hmm. and so even like little things like that just it always somehow found itself in the pop cultural consciousness Mm -hmm. so it became one of those things where even if you'd never seen it like you said you could just show someone a picture and they'd be like oh that's spongebob yeah there's that meme where he's got the the rainbow where he says imagine it that's one, like, you see that, we're like, nobody cares, or whatever. Yeah. People always put different things yeah. over that rainbow. People that have probably never watched SpongeBob have <laughs> shared that meme. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, of course, of course. And uh, um, going back to just, you know, talking about the, the technical f- filmmaking aspect of documentary filmmaking, something that I find very fascinating when it comes to documentary films is, you know, with a lot of narrative films, um, you, you know, you write the script, you know what the story is, you shoot the story, and then you, you go through the editing process, the post-production process, but you kind of know what your story is right from the very beginning. And anyone who's experimented with documentaries knows you may have a story in mind when you start shooting, but your story doesn't really start to come together until you're in that editing room, because then you see these hours of footage that you've shot, and you're like, oh, wow, like, this person and this person who we didn't even interview together are like kind of telling a same story here. We can kind of, we can put this together. And so yeah. my, my question for you guys is, did you have one story going into make it? And did that story change as you got into post-production? I mean, I think personally it, it changed. Sure. Not that much. We, we did do a lot of front loaded just research and we really mapped it out 
this is the story, how we think it should go, you know? So we were shooting for something instead of just asking people all these questions, getting all this footage and then going, okay, now we're going to start writing the story. That, I mean, to me, that would be very difficult to start writing the story in the end. But with some documentaries, that is, like you said, that's what you have to do. With this, because it was a retrospective, we were able to kind of come up with a story. And then, yeah, in the editing room, that's where it came to life. You know, that's where, and there were a lot of tough decisions to be made there because, you know, we, we interviewed, you know, 30 people, everybody, some, some people were like for two hours. So I mean, we had like 40, 50 hours worth of footage to go through and try to meld that into a 90 minute documentary is pretty tough. You know, what, what, what gets cut, what stays in, how do we move from this point to this point? Um, and we really wanted all the different segments, you know, cause we kind of tell little mini stories of all the different shows. We wanted those to feel alive and feel different. So it doesn't feel like formulaic where we just, okay, now we talk about Doug. Now we talk about, Hey dude, now we talk about salute your shorts. We wanted each part. It had to, it had to be organic. And luckily everybody's interview was super candid. Uh, but yeah, it was, uh, I mean, the editing process was long <laughs> and arduous and that really is kind of, I mean, half of the writing is, is beforehand. And then, I mean, I think even in narrative features, editors should get like a writing credit because they really are, they're the final writer of a, of a film, but certainly with documentaries, I mean, that's where you, you, you fine tune the, the process. And, you know, we were fortunate to have an amazing, uh, post-production team on this uh me and a guy named sean coffin edited a lot of it he was also our uh our director of photography and then you know one thing that's pretty cool about this is we got to work with people that we were fans of uh like the guy that did the music was somebody that that we had been wanting to work with for a long time a fantastic musician named darren beck and then the other editor that worked with with us uh was a guy named bradford thomason and he had uh, edited the Glow documentary. He had edited the Rockafire Explosion documentary. Uh, he had edited, a, so I mean, we loved his, Some of his documentaries were the ones that we watched to like figure out how, how do you tell, you know, how do, how do you, what's the, what are some techniques you can use to really bring these stories that are like retrospective uh, documentaries to life. So to get to work with him was like a dream come true. And, uh, and that, so that, that, that was the, one of the pros was we kind of had the story going. It wasn't like Tiger King or something where you're out there with a camera and you're finding the story as it goes. That's difficult. Uh, we had the pros of, we kind of, Adam and I did a bunch of research and, and, and just researched everything. And so we knew the story as we wanted to tell it, but the downside of, for me, uh, telling a story that is a retrospective where you're not doing that cinema verite stuff where you're out there filming stuff happening now it's all in the past is how do you bring that to life how do you keep that feeling lively and and it doesn't feel like you're just talking about the past and it's you're just listening to people talk and again we just had a great post-production team darren the music that the score that he did helps keep it lively uh we had a great animator named jeff johnson who he took some of these stories that people tell that we don't have any B-roll of and animated them. And he has kind of like a Spumco, Ren and Stimpy style to his animation. 
so there's a, a pretty so there's like three or four different stories like there's a story mark summers tells there's a story that dj McHale tells about are you afraid of the dark that uh that he animated uh and it really brings that to life and then we just got a you know the archival process of finding all of those old shows <laughs> whether it was from getting vhs's and converting them talking to the owners you know the creators of these shows do you still have the master tapes or whether it was just getting it offline however we could that was a long process but again we work with amazing people and so it it, it really brought it it brought it to life it was a, it was a, it was a fun time yeah and i think that to to just kind of echo that a little bit is the way that we brought it to life also additionally is that there were just these watershed moments that happened that inspired these next steps in the process right so for example it was like okay well they needed to come up with original programming at that time so that sparked them to do this right which then motivated us to go into these different like kind of like sub stories if you will right or the b stories like and so that helped out a lot as well but yeah like scott said there were a ton of amazing people uh you know Scott kicked ass on everything that he did. And so uh, it, you're right. It, the story, half of it happens afterwards. And, you know, I, I would say, prob I mean, I, it, it sounds strange. I'm like, half of it happens then, half of it happens then. And then there's about 10 to 20% in the middle, right? Which is like, yeah. okay, uh, you can tell that I'm not good at math. But like, you, you do learn some of the story as it's happening in mm -hmm. the in the production and in the process mm -hmm. right because you end up there are people that will tell you stories or give you these tidbits that you weren't expecting or they will realistically reject some of the notion or some of the ideas that you originally had and so i i think it speaks a lot to the team that we were willing to adapt and to be flexible, right? Because we could have kept trying to, you know, kind of slam a square peg into a round hole. Uh, but if the story for that isn't there, then you need to move, you need to move on, right? And who knows better than the people that were there living it and creating it. So uh, yeah, a documentary is definitely interesting, you know, and, uh, and it has a life of its own. So uh, I, I appreciate the fact that you, you know, that you picked up on that and that you allowed us to talk about it some. Yeah, no, of course. And uh, also, um, kind of combining both of some something that both of you guys said, um, you know, Adam, you saying, you know, a lot of the story happens like while you're there while it's happening. And with Scott mentioning that you got to work with people that you're fans of, you know, sort of combining that to those two things, I, I think my next question really just has to be, while you're shooting, because that's when it feels real. It's kind of when you're on because like, you can kind of plan it, you know, pre-plan as much you, as everything you want to, you know, all the pre-production in the world. But when you show up day one and cameras are rolling, you have that moment of like, oh, it's happening. And uh, when that was going on, did you guys have a particular favorite memory or a favorite person that you interviewed? And were you ever like starstruck by who you were talking to on set, you know, clearly being a fan of all of these things? Yeah, I think that uh, I, I don't know there was if there was ever a time that we weren't somewhat starstruck by mm -hmm. getting to meet everybody because it was a privilege. Uh, you know, Scott and I have talked before about, you know, there are two big moments that, that I felt 
you know, um, and I'm, I'm sure Scott can speak on one that about a person walking into the room. And then the other one was whenever we met Larissa Olenek, you know, because uh, you're just having a conversation with her about auditions that she's going on and things like that. And then you're like, oh my gosh, wait, wow. Okay. So, you know what I mean? Like you're like talking to this person because they're Alex Mack. Like they are the person, right? They're the character. But at the same time, there's so much more and they've gone on to have such a big career, right? And, and I do think that there's, there's a little bit of an obligation or responsibility and some pressure to do things the right way because these are all, like everybody involved, they're geniuses, right? And they've worked with the best. And so as you're setting up, as you're preparing, as you're asking your questions, things like that, you're like, oh my gosh, I hope that they're not thinking that we're just, yeah. you know, kind of like three stooges just running around, you know? So uh, I think everybody, everybody, it was such an honor, but I, I remember there was one moment, I think maybe, you know, Scott can speak on it, uh, where it, it was like, okay, this is, this is real. It's, it's go time. Oh yeah. I think I know what you're talking about. It was the, you know, <laughs> Adam and I are, are 80s and 90s kids, but we're, we're, we kind of lean more towards the 80s. And so there was one guy that if you were an 80s kid, that was like your guy, and that's Mark Summers. And he was like one of the first interviews that we did was Mark Summers. So we were, it was our very first shoot, really our first like proper shoot. We'd flown to LA. We had gotten there the night before and we were setting up and we just hear this voice like, hi, I'm Mark. And we look and it's like Mark Summers. It's so surreal. Like that's how we started, you know. And on our our first trip, we would pack those interviews because uh, you know we had such a. I'm really proud of our budget. Like we we, you know, you can go to look on our Indiegogo, and we we made that money like last for a long ways. Um, we would just go to LA and just do an interview, do another interview, do another interview, do another interview, do another interview, and then go to sleep do another interview. I mean, and we're, you know, it's like at the end of the night, you're like charging, charging batteries, making sure all the footage is backed up to two places. So you got to get a couple hours of sleep to get, um, get back up and do it all over again. But it, it never felt like work. So uh, yeah, it was like that first trip. I mean, we met like from the game shows, Mark Summers, Phil Moore, Kirk Fogg from the TV shows. We met Alisa Reyes, Josh Server, Lori Beth Denberg, uh, Venus DeMilo, uh, Michael Ray Bauer, Danny Cooksey, Steve Slavkin, Will Mc... I mean, it was just, uh, the list goes on and on. It all in one trip where it was kind of like, whoa, this is crazy. Um, but I, I think it kind of, there was two different types of starstruck. One, when you meet somebody that you watched, one of the, like, the actors, for example, the on-camera people that you grew up watching, like a Mark Summers or a Kenan Thompson or... Uh, Lori Beth Denberg, people like that, that like, wow, I, I grew up watching you. Um, that is crazy. You know, that's, that, there's that kind of starstruck. But then to meet the creators, which were people that you didn't know of when you were a kid, you know, you probably weren't watching the credits when you're like eight years old, but to get to meet the creators of all those shows, like creator of Are You Afraid of the Dark, the creator of PDP, and to get to hear from them, like how they created the show, you know, it's like when you're talking to one of your colleagues or your buddies about a, a film that they're working on, they're talking about it in the same way, you know, just very nonchalantly. And you're like, this is a show that like shaped my childhood. 
that shaped me as a person. And you're just like, yeah, I remember one day on set, you know, this happened. So we had to do this other thing. So it was uh, very, it was two different types of starstruck. There's the, the kind that you get from seeing those people you watched. And then from getting to meet the creators, we were like, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm basically getting a masterclass on how to write TV from all the people that we, we talk to. I mean, for real, you know? Yeah, no, that's, that's so, that's so crazy. And I, I didn't really think about, you know, the sort of differences and, you know, seeing someone that you're used to watching versus someone that's literally responsible for creating these emotional feelings that helped shape you as a child. And like it, the, you know, I, I couldn't even imagine being, not only being in the position that you guys were in, but then knowing that like, okay, now we have to, you know, continue with our documentary that we're making. So it, it's, it's, it kind of sucks that you had to sit there, like take it in for a second and then be like, oh, okay, time to do the interview and the kind of right. you know, go yeah. and get, try to switch your brain to work mode. That that's commendable. <laughs> so good. That's, I mean, yeah, we, we wanted to be, you know, it, it, the, the, the whole passion thing and the fact that this was very personal for both of us. Um, like you said, that's a good thing, of course, you know, to be passionate about your subject, but we also didn't want that to get in the way, you know, like at the end of the day, you know, document documentary filmmaking, it's, it's a form of journalist, a, a form of journalism. And we wanted to do that. You know, we didn't want our feelings on a certain topic to bleed through our, our excitement and our enjoyment. Sure but we did feel an obligation to tell the story as it happened and be, you know, documentarians. We, we, we knew we needed to do that. And we knew we needed to take this very, from a very early on, we, re, we, we knew that. And we said that to each other. We're telling an amazing story here. And the fact that we get to do it is such an honor. We've got to take this very seriously. You know, we didn't just want to make a small little movie with no production value. We always wanted to make something that was really good because we knew we were telling the story of these amazing people. And you have, you know, you, you hear the saying, you have to be willing to kill your darlings, right? And so with so many amazing sound bites and so many amazing stories from all these people, you know, there, it is tough to decide what's going to make the cut and what's not. And to the the credit of everybody that worked with us and really you know luckily luckily enough us us working together there, yeah. there was never a time where that was a challenge right like i don't think there was ever any moment where it was like no we have to keep this in right um which could have easily happened because we all have favorites and you also you want to do justice to everybody but the reality is that story prevails and so that was that that helped us right we always using that framework always kept a north star for us and uh, i think that that's what ultimately served the story awesome awesome and uh something that i find just you know in, in personal experiences in filmmaking is when things are going too smooth you're uneasy like you're just like something's wrong because nothing bad has happened yet and it's, it's can kind of be this unnerving feeling because, you know, any part of filmmaking, it's all about overcoming challenges, whether it's in the pre-production, the shooting or the post-production. So I guess my, my next question to you guys is, uh, what were some challenges in making this film that, that you needed to overcome, but that, you know, kind of felt like, not necessarily like buried by this challenge, but just like you knew that you, this was something you could overcome in order to make this project happen. Does that, does that make sense? Kind of yeah. like, yeah, okay. So just 
you know, what were some of these challenges? And, you know, if you can, if you can think of specific ones in each part of the process, um, please just go in. Cause I know like uh, so some of the people who are listening are people who want to get into filmmaking, get into documentaries and, you know, they are um, just, they don't know the, these kind of challenges that they can face. So, you know, speak as if you're speaking to someone who has genuinely no idea about a challenge you could face on a big project like this and how did you overcome it? You know, I think some of the biggest challenges that we had, because <clears throat> we were still working day jobs, right? Uh, we were taking our vacation days to go and do these interviews uh, is, uh, I, I think, budget. Budget's always, always a challenge, right? Uh, I think anybody, even a Christopher Nolan, would say you never have enough money. Uh, and we we were confident that we could get it done. And uh, I think that the ways that we overcame that, uh, one of the things we talked about at the very beginning, uh, which was a good learning process, was to be confident in what we can do, but then also know whenever it's time to ask for help. And don't be egotistical, don't be prideful. Know what you know, uh, be willing to learn things and then, you know, uh, network and uh, make sure that you are letting other people have the chance to shine where they're best at. You know, uh, Scott talked about Darren, uh, Justin Harder, uh, Allie Clark and Jeff Johnson, all of these amazing people that if we had tried to do that, maybe we could have done something right? But it wouldn't have been nearly as good. So, you know, my recommendation is make sure that you are building relationships with people, uh, not only to where they can help your story, but to where you can help them also, right? Because that matters a lot. And, and be willing to step back whenever, and, and also schedule, 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 and be ready to have that there's be prepared that there's going to be time where things are not going to go well, right? Things are going to happen. Like, for example, I remember one night, the night before we went to go interview Kel Mitchell, uh, my, my plane got stuck. I think it was in, or no, it was in Phoenix. That's right. We were going to LA yeah. and, and, my, and, and I got stuck in the airport for the, the entire night. So you know, luckily Scott was, uh, you know, as, as he always is, is very resourceful and we were able to start the interview, but things like that are going to happen, you know, all the time. So be resourceful and, you know, have a plan A, but then also have a plan B because there inevitably is going to be a point in time when that's going to happen. Um, but Scott, what do you think, man? To kind of like divvy it up, I would say for pre-production, you know, one of the things that was difficult was in the beginning was booking interviews. Uh, when you're doing a documentary, it's, it's, it's hard to get through to the people you need to get through to, but just have faith that you will and keep moving forward. Because once we got each person that we got, it got easier and easier and easier. Once we got the first group of four or five, the next four or five were easier. And the next 10 after that were even easier. Like it happens, you know, and you, it, it's crazy that we went into this without having anybody booked, you know, we could have run a crowdfund campaign, told everyone we're making a Nickelodeon movie and had everyone say, no, I don't want to do it. Um, 
so in, in, in some ways I'm like, we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't have done that. But then on the, uh, in, in, in other ways, I go, no, we should have, that's the way to do it. Just, just start, you know, just start, just, just go and it'll happen. Um, the one thing I would say that I, um, do as much as you can yourself before you start reaching out to other people, you're gonna, cause you're gonna, like Adam said, you're gonna need other people. Um, and not just, uh, like if you can film part of your documentary without having to get funding, do that, do, do as much as you can just on your own. Because I think that, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. you know, but if you can get a good chunk of it shot, you're going to be able to raise more money because you can show people what your vision is. Um, and you can, you know, people, people, you have more clout, uh, as in terms of the actual production process, that was probably for, for me, like the easiest part because it was stressful, but once, once it's over, it's over. <laughs> you know, if, if you, if you know, you got an interview and he's going to be here and it's somebody big in 30 minutes and you're in the middle and you got to set up your lights, you got to set up your audio, you've got to set up the camera, you got to get an angle that looks cool. And you're in kind of this dimly lit warehouse. It's stressful, but then once it's over, it's over. You know, once the, once the interview is going, it's, it's over. So I would say, you know, don't, don't, I, I definitely beat myself up too much. Certain shots that I shot, I was like, ah, this one doesn't look that good. Or, oh, there's this one glare and it, it's all stuff. It doesn't matter. You know, it's, it's, it, it, it's the overall, you know, do as good as you can, but don't stress out if you make a mistake because more than likely you're going to be able to fix it later or uh, it's just going to not be noticeable. And then, you know, for post-production, I mean, I, the thing that I learned from that is because it is, it's like anything else, you know, when your house gets totally messy and you're like, or you have all these things in your life, you're like, where do I even start? And you end up not doing anything. It was to, what I would say to anybody is like, you know, if you're sitting on like 40, 50 hours of footage and you're like, just take it step by step, just divide it. Once we divided it up into chapters, just take it step by step. Because then once you start editing the first one, you go, okay, now I have my flow. Now I know, oh, and then, and then the juices start flowing. So that's what I would say is, yes, it, it looks like an impossible task when you look at all this footage, but just say, I'm just editing this one scene. You know, <laughs> here's the, you can't do that on television part where they talk about that. I'm going to edit that first, you know, and then then go into the double dare one. And then pretty soon you've got a movie. The other thing I would say, and some people could say this is bad advice, but I would say that it's good <laughs> advice is learn how to do everything, but don't forget what you want to do. You know, don't, don't, um, don't, if you want to be a writer, be the best writer that you can be, but maybe learn to shoot and learn to edit and learn to, you know, produce, learn to raise money because that certainly helped us along the way that we had a lot of people that could kind of do two or three different things that brought our budget way down. You know, am I going to beat myself up that I'm not as good a cinematographer as someone whose passion is cinematography? No, but you know, I think that we were good enough to at least get shots that work, you know? So, I mean, some people say, don't try to learn multiple things, focus on one thing. I would say, learn how to do as much as you can, because it also helps you communicate with those people. If you know how to edit, you can talk to an editor. If you know how to shoot and you can talk about, you know, exposure and three-point lighting and stuff, that's going to help you talk to your cinematographer instead of going, hey, make this look cool. 
you know? Uh, so I would say learn how to do everything, but, but, but don't try to be an A student at all, at all of those things. Remember what you want to do, but just learn how to do everything else at least at an acceptable rate. Yeah, no, uh, it's funny you mentioned that. And first of all, I don't think it's bad advice at all. I think that's great advice because it's something that, you know, a lot of, you know, young or just any even new in filmmaking learns is, you know, you can dabble in the basics of everything and still stay focused on what you want to do. Because like you said, it not only gives that perspective of, you know, if you can communicate with people who are passionate about those things better, but also passion is contagious. And I think that's something that you guys obviously know very well. But, you know, when you're clearly passionate about one thing, like let's say you're, you're really passionate about writing, but you know how to edit a little bit. When you're talking to your editor, when they see that passion, then they now, that passion is now ignited in them to help your project. I know writing and editing are completely different parts of filmmaking, but you, you get what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And it's, you know, that, I just like the spin you put on that. That was very interesting. And, you know, even on a budgetary constraint that's also helpful and that's something that i didn't even really think about until and then when you said it i'm like well of course that kind of seems obvious it's something that i probably should have known but uh you know hearing all that is really you know it's nice and it's you know it's it's good knowing that there are you know still people who are passionate about telling a story and are able to overcome these challenges and so something that a compliment that i want to give both of you that both of you deserve is you know uh scott you, you said that you know, once we booked the, the couple of first interviews, you know, then the rest of them kind of became easy. That's kind of skipping over the fact that if you had done booked those first two interviews and the people you interviewed didn't like the passion that you guys had and didn't like where that was going, they can talk to all their Nickelodeon buddies and be like, hey, tell these guys no. Like, like these guys are nuts. But no, what happened is you clearly walked in that room, had the story ready, had your passion ready, and you showed the people you were interviewing that you were in and for real about making this story so that when word started to spread around about this documentary that you were making, people were excited to be a part of it. And you guys deserve to be patted on the back for that because that is not something that is easy in any capacity. So you guys are clearly very exceptionally talented filmmakers and you just deserve that compliment because I feel like it's Thank not you. something that a lot of, you know, because a lot of people, when they watch a movie, they, they kind of see the surface of it, but they don't think of all the work that goes in behind the scenes and, Part of that work is the literal, you know, editing, the literal directing, but a lot of that is just the way that you're able to be charismatic and get people on your side as to they, they want you to tell your story. It's so hard to get someone else to want you to tell the story you want to tell. And, you know, the fact that you guys are able to do that is amazing. So just, you know, congratulations on that front. And I'm kind of going to go into my next question i'm horrible at segways <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was pretty good <laughs> but thank you before we move and you're on not horrible. I have to say thank, you're not you. thank you so that that means a lot i never thought about that but yeah i guess if we had been bozos they would have said these guys are calling just hang up just ignore <laughs> yeah. yeah get a burner phone throw your <laughs> phone away change your number do not let these people near you <laughs> oh my gosh no but uh um something that i think that is um just for me personally each project that i work on is and i think every filmmaker can say this is there's something that you learn and it's something that you didn't go in expecting to learn because there are some lessons that you know you're like all right i'm gonna finally figure out how to do this once you start on a project but then something happens at some point in the filmmaking process 
where you kind of step back and you're like, wow, that is something I've never even thought about before, but I'm going to remember that on every project I do going forward forever. So I kind of just wanted to get, you know, pick your brains on what was something in making this film, like a lesson that you took away that you weren't expecting to be taught to yourself? That's, a good, that's an excellent question. Um, you know, I, I think what I would take away from it, and, and Scott talked about it uh, a little bit earlier, is to... I, just don't question yourself so much, right? To, uh, I, I think that Scott and I, and I think a lot of cre creative people are, uh, can tend to undercut themselves or to look at a mountain or some other filmmaker or writer and say, wow, like how do you even get to that point, right? And the reality is, is that person started somewhere as well. and they they were not experts at the beginning right and so it's like when you were asking the question about uh you know what what advice you would give you know i would say go for it right no one's going to do it for you and that isn't meant to be negative it's meant to be positive right because if you have a dream and if you have an idea who knows it could it, it, i mean it's going to be amazing and so for me, what I learned is to believe in yourself and also exhaust all the resources that you possibly can, right? Because you'd be amazed by what you can do. I think, you know, Robert Rodriguez has an amazing book, right? Rebel Without a Crew, where he talks about making yourself in, make yourself indisposable, right? And that means learn a lot of different tricks. You know, we went to crowdfunding uh, agencies and talked to them for a little bit who were saying that they could get us across the finish line and things like that. And they would have cost more than our entire budget. And the reality is that probably there wouldn't, it wouldn't have been as heartfelt. Uh, they probably, they may have not had a better understanding of, or a complete understanding of what we were trying to accomplish at that time. And we got there anyways, right? Uh, because of a lot of uh, very generous people, right? But if we hadn't believed in ourselves, maybe the film doesn't get made. And so that was something that I took away from, from it. And uh, that served us, you know, that, that served us very well. And so I would say to anybody listening, thinking about writing a script, thinking about going to become an actor, becoming a PA, DP, if you want to direct, whatever it is, do it, right? just start it and then it's going to work itself out as long as you keep going right because everybody has ideas and there are a million great ideas but the million great ideas immediately get funneled through kind of the eye of a needle for the people that get it done you know I, i'm going to say this really quickly and, and i don't mean to be long-winded but I had a friend, uh, Kenny, who was in, in college with me and he had created this exhibit, this art exhibit, and this piece that was like this snail that you could go into that was made out of garbage bags. And it was huge, right? It was like 10, 20 feet high, right? And somebody walked by and they kind of scoffed and they said, I could have made that. And I remember Kenny looking at him and he said, but you didn't. And that meant so much, right? So 
your work does not have to be Citizen Kane, right? You're going to get better. And so you just have to do it. And so I think that having Scott there to motivate me and, you know, everybody, us motivating each other to get through the finish line, as well as our friends and family supporting us, that helped us. So, you know, what I learned is just go for it, trust yourself, trust in your story, and uh, eventually you're going to get to the point where you're going to do something that's really special. Yeah, I mean, honestly, you say there are moments that um, – that you learn something. I feel like this whole process, I was, I was learning something every step of the way. I, I learned something new. I thought I knew what I was doing going into this um, because I knew how to work a camera and I knew how to edit. And uh, I was like, Oh yeah. But um, you know, one thing I would say to kind of back up what we spoke about before is you got to have a passion for every step of the way. And if you can have a passion and you can learn like maybe cinematography isn't your thing but learn about it so that that way you can talk to the cinematographer and you can it helps you with your vision you know if you have a look and a feel cinematography is half of that you know if you're the director um so I would just say have a passion for every step of the way if you don't if there's one part you're not liking I mean you're gonna struggle because it's all important um, so that's one thing that I would say is if you're not having fun, especially for documentary films, we're like, let's be honest, we're not driving Lambos. If you're, if you're, if you're not having fun, you, you get out, it's not for you, you know? And you know, it, it's, 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 it's a humbling experience as the director. You're, you're kind of at the top and bottom of the food chain at the same time. You got to be willing to go get food for people to, 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 you're the one who's charging, recharging batteries at the end of the night and copying footage. Just, you gotta be ready for like that stuff. You know, if you're the type of person that's gonna be like, that's not, that's not my job. Well, it is now, you know, that's, you got it. You gotta get used to it. Um, so I learned that and I, I, I learned so much about cinematography from our cinematographer, Sean Coffin. That was so great. Uh, and Jacob Halinga, who also did some additional cinematography. I learned so many things now when I shoot my own stuff where I'm the camera guy, it looks like night and day different because of what I learned from those guys. When I edit the stuff that I learned from Bradford on how to move from one place to another and make it feel organic and make it feel natural. I, I'm not the same editor that I was because I wanted to learn. I would ask him questions. How do you do that? How did you make that seem so flawless? Why do your shots look so good and mine look like crap? Because I asked him that, it made me better and stronger. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a better filmmaker for, for that. Um, so I would say that is like, ask questions all the time from other people that are working for you because you're not their boss. You know, you're really not. They're doing, they're, they're, this is a, a, a process where you're all working together. And the other thing that I learned that I would say, because this was so fun, you know, it was, it was so fun to work on is, um, and everybody was so positive. The whole team, our Orange Ears team was amazing to work with, our, all of us, uh, and then all the people that we interviewed. But, you know, at the end of the day, though, there are going to be people from the outside that once your project starts doing good, are going to try to take advantage of you, you know, are going to try to, to, to come in on it, you know. And that's hard because you've worked so hard. And there were people that didn't believe in you and didn't want to invest in you and did. And now all of a sudden that 
it's getting bigger, they're going to want to come in and you have to be willing to stand your ground and go, no. And sometimes it's scary. Some of the people that you say no to, you're like, it doesn't feel right saying no to these people, but you have to, because of course they want a piece of the pie now <laughs> to come in at the very end and swoop in and try to get in. So I would just say, you know, and you're going to have to do a lot of negotiating. And that was another thing I wasn't ready for. I'm from Texas where everyone's really nice. So the idea of somebody trying to come in and take away a big percentage of the film was crazy. Um, and again, we were all awesome. Everybody that ended up working on this film and the distributor that got the film is fantastic. But, you know, there were people that tried to come in that, you know, did try to take advantage of us. Absolutely. Once this thing got off the ground. And I, I, I'm glad that we did. We, we did have to stand our ground and go, kind of like Adam said, we knew we were a part of something special. We knew this was a, a, a good product have faith in it. And if you have to say no to this person, there's going to be somebody else that's going to be a better fit down the road. And I think one, one thing I'll say really quickly that I would also encourage is, is be patient mm -hmm. because not everything's going to happen overnight. Uh, when we premiered our film, uh, that was almost two years ago yeah. to this day. And you at that point are like, okay, well, it's going to be picked up and, and it was picked up. Right. But there, it happens all the time with films where they get, tr they transition over to different, I mean, look at just at the Zack Snyder justice league, right? Yeah. He yeah. didn't get to make, he didn't get to make the film. And then now it's going to be like on HBO max. Right. So yeah. lo and behold, years later, he ends up making the film that, that he wanted to make. And so there's, uh, you know, I, I'm not, I, I'm the type of person that like loves, and I think a lot of people do, loves like immediate uh, gratification, right? Like I want to see like that script that comes out. I want to be able to yeah. look at the dailies or whatever it may be, right? And go, cool. Yeah, we nailed it, right? And And that's just not the way it always works because there are so many people that hold keys to doors that you don't have and mm -hmm. you have to be respectful of that because it, 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 it's a process and uh so if you're patient it's it's this balancing act right between like going for it and making sure that you're continuing to gain momentum but then also being patient and knowing eventually it's going to see the light of day and if you can do both of those then you're ahead of the game honestly because it's a, it's you know it's it's always going to be a constant challenge there's something that we kind of always joke about that the bad part of making these very small independent documentary films or just independent films in general is you got to do everything yourself, <laughs> but the, that's the bad news. But the good news is you get to do everything yourself, you know, like to compare it to like Zack Snyder, we didn't have a big studio breathing down our neck telling us what to do. We got to be involved in every aspect of the film. And how cool is that all the way down to the soundtrack? You know, we got to like, like there's one song where I play guitar on one of the songs, you know? So it's pretty cool that, that all of that we got to do, but there is a point where you're going to have to let your baby go. And that was another thing that was difficult for me. And I know it was difficult for Adam too, is because you're, you're involved in everything. It's all you, this is you every day. It's a lot like sending you, I've sent a kid off to kindergarten where it's like, you're their whole world. And now you're not, you know, it's very, it's the same feeling where it's like, all of a sudden you got to let it go. And that was to Adam's point. Once it came time to sell it, 
we don't know how to sell a film. We've never done that before. <laughs> That's not our wheelhouse. So uh, we had a, what I would say is make sure when it comes time to let your baby go is make sure you're letting it go to somebody that you trust. And if you don't trust them, then you got to take a couple of steps back. Cause luckily we did, you know, it took a long time, but luckily we had Endeavor content that was selling our, our, um, our film and we trusted them and then Gravitas bought it and we trusted them. So I would say, you know, there's people that are going to want to give you advice and your, you know, my reaction a lot of times was to either always take it because this person must know more than me or to disregard it because they don't understand my vision. But the, the, what you probably should do is somewhere in the middle. And that is find people that you trust and take their advice. Find somebody that's done what you want to do and listen to them. If it's somebody who hasn't done what you want to do, why would you take their advice? You know, but if it's somebody that has listen to them. So surround yourself with people that are doing things you want to do and listen to them. And when you do have to let this go and you have to be, let other people in, like Adam said, there's certain people that have doors that are open to them that are not open to you. And you have to, you have to, you can't do it all. Like, like we said, me and Adam wanted to do it all ourselves and, and we started out, but we certainly did not make this film all by ourselves. We had some amazing people doing it. And luckily um, they were great people that we trusted and, and, and are awesome. Well, um, beautiful testaments for both of you guys. You know, not only are people who are going to be watching this, you know, learning something from you, but I, I just learned so much from listening to you guys talk. <laughs> so thank you just for all of those things that you've said. And, um, you know, so some of this I've personally experienced and some of it is, you know, just it's still nice to hear, even though it's something you've heard before. Like one of my favorite sayings, and I don't, for the life of me, don't remember who first said it, but you know, the idea of you can't steer a parked car. Like, you know, any anytime you want, to, like the moment you do it, even if it's the worst thing ever, because every filmmaker has that thing where they make their first thing and look at it and they're like, wow, yep. that was terrible. But even that, even you doing that, you are ahead of everyone else who just talks about doing it. And so, you know, just hearing you guys reiterate that message was just, it means a lot, not only to me, but to, I know a lot of people listening. So thank you guys for that. And, uh, you know, a uh, couple more questions. Um, you know, going back to the orange years, um, just really, when is this film going to be available to watch? You know, when are the people who really want to see this movie, like me, are going to get this chance? You know, tell us, you know, when and where can we watch this movie? Okay, so yeah, you can pre-order it on iTunes right now. Uh, and there's actually a sale this weekend. So you can get it for half off this weekend. Uh, but you can pre-order it on iTunes. Uh, come November 17th, you can also order it on Amazon. If you're kind of old school and you want a physical copy, you can get a Blu-ray or a DVD also on Amazon or on Target. So that's how you can get it. We're really excited for people to check it out. Awesome, awesome, awesome. And, uh, you know, uh, I got two more. Uh, one is, um, you know, obviously talking about the film that you've made and just being filmmakers in general, we all have, you know, that movie going experience that kind of changed us. Just, you know, just I, I don't know if you knew it from the everything about I have and I love <laughs> movies, but uh, just there's always that like whether you were a kid or even I can tell you theatrical just experiences as an adult that just changed my life and I, I feel just you know more inclined to ask a question just because of the really bad shape movie theaters are in right now 
but um, what, what was that movie, that theatrical experience, like when you saw it, it just changed the world. Because just to me personally, there's nothing like the movie going experience. And just, you know, once yep. you get sucked into the screen and sucked into the art, there's really no other experience like it. It's repetitive, but I'm doing it because of how much I truly mean that. And so just what, what was that movie or movies where you were at the theater, you watched it and, you know, the crowd was going crazy or everyone was crying. It just, it just blew you away. Just tell me all about it. So one that stands out to me was uh, The Dark Knight. I remember going to see that at midnight whenever it used to be midnight instead of seven o'clock showings. Uh, and the moment that Heath Ledger comes on screen and starts laughing when he's talking to the mob. And then whenever you knew, like you felt like something was special. And then as soon as he did the magic trick with the pencil and the entire crowd erupted, you knew that you were in for a one of a kind performance. And I remember leaving the movie theater and I went and saw it again at six in the morning at the IMAX. And I remember immediately calling my brother uh, and telling him, you have to go see this movie this, this weekend. Like, I, I don't care if you're working. I don't care what it is. You have to go do it. Another one is uh, when I went and saw the Blair Witch Project. Uh, because that was also before social media was in existence. And so it was so cool to go see it early and then going and see it again with bigger crowds and hearing everybody talk while we were in lines, right? About people that were like, oh my gosh, did you hear these kids got killed? Like, oh my gosh, it's so scary. Blah, 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 blah. You know, and now of course, nobody, you know, like the closest thing to any type of surprise that we've probably had in the last 10 years in film is Baby Yoda with yeah. The Mandalorian. And so those two really stand out to me as, as films that you could just tell that you could not replicate that if you were not in, if you weren't in the theater. Yeah, and uh, really quick before we go over to Scott, uh, just to go off some of your things, The Dark Knight was the first movie I ever saw in IMAX. Oh, wow. yeah. And I was... I was young. I was like 12 or 13 when that movie yeah. came out. And it was, the, and it was, it was funny because uh, I, at that time, I grew up in a very, very small town and I wouldn't shut up to my entire family of like, someone please, for the love of God, take me to go see this movie. And like, it was the opening weekend and my cousin was like, I'll go, like, let's just go. So we drove to this theater uh, in Madison, Ohio. Wow. And okay. we get there and lines out the door and because like that was foreign to us because where we grew up, like it was never that packed. And so we were just like, oh, we might not even get to watch it. And my cousin's probably thinking like, oh, this kid's going to cry on the way home if we don't get to see this movie. So he, he's just like <laughs> trying to trying to get it done. And we get there and it was also the first time I'd ever experienced like reserved seating. Wow. So yeah. they're like, so they're like, all right, um, here like oh sorry like all of our show times are like in the first row or whatever and then he's like oh no and then he's like what about the imax screen and turns out two people had just refunded their tickets in the very back row and wow. she was like we have two left and he was like get them 
and uh, I got to see the Dark Knight in the IMAX. And like you said, with the pencil trick, everyone going nuts. Like when the semi truck flipped, I remember my oh, audience yeah. went nuts. Mm. And and uh, just for Blair Witch Project, um, I graduated from UCF, which the filmmakers who made that movie graduated from UCF. So all over UCF Film School, you see that poster, and you they have like a special copy of it in the library. And yeah. um, you and you talk about pre-social media. It was also just one of the first major motion pictures to do viral marketing. No and doubt. I, and I think that yeah. the only recent movie I can think of that had a viral marketing campaign as successful was probably Deadpool. Just with mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this crazy oh, stuff yeah. you could do with that character. But yeah, no, awesome, awesome experiences. And I'm sorry to jump in and interrupt. I just no, no. And if, if you get a it. chance, I'm sorry. If you get a chance, go check out the, the, the marketing that Dark Knight did. Like the Dark Knight oh, yeah. did some amazing stuff, and yeah. and you know to this day I I still remember so much of it that I was just like, you know I was on edge, you know just couldn't wait to see what it was. Um, but yeah, yeah, those are those. I mean that's awesome. Shout out to shout out to UCF. I mean like mm-hmm. the, you said, it's a, it was it Central Florida. Yeah, yeah, University of Central Florida. The mm. Knights, right? Yeah. Is that is that like where you is that where you part of the name? comes from from movie nights part of it part of it well like because when when we were in uh my production company and we were in school we were trying to think of a name and we thought we were clever so we're like oh movie nights haha like and then we're like and then we were like oh that's probably taken and then we like googled like the llc's around town and like it wasn't taken and we were like get on this so we get it we got it and so we we were able to do that yeah that's and, uh, awesome. But, and the thing is, you'd think that that was like the first name we came up with. We had like two pages of lists of just like, what are we going to call ourselves? And like how that wasn't like idea number one. Right. It's fascinating. Right. right. But some, sometimes it just comes, you know, I mean, to you eventually. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, like, uh, yeah. and, and yeah. I'm not trying to hold off Scott from like getting to say his, <laughs> you know, his cinematic experiences. But, you know, it's, it's like me more time to think about it. <laughs> but like the orange years, you know, it's it's like you think about it and sometimes something pops up and you're like, that's it. Yeah, that's, that's it. It couldn't yeah. be called anything else. Uh, so, yeah, the, I mean, movie nights, that's awesome. And also. I, uh, as, as a sports fan, um, and now I need to know more about the, about the film department from, from, from central Florida. That's awesome, man. So cool. That's funny. Blair Witch. That was one of the first movies I saw that was like rated R. Like I can remember I was like old enough to go barely. And I, I had to go to like a hip theater. It wasn't like one in the suburban area. I had to go downtown. And it was also that movie. I, I equate it more to like, almost like, early internet experience because that was whenever the internet was brand new and i can remember looking on the on the internet when i didn't really know what the internet even was trying to i'd say google but i don't think google was even really that big yet trying to figure out like i was just like is this real is this real i couldn't really find out uh so yeah i have fond experiences that too i got three little little mini ones if we're talking just in the theater because i agree I love movies. The majority of the movies I've seen in my life, I've just been like at my house um, or it's a friend's house or something like that. But there is nothing like going to the theater, the smell of the popcorn, the whole theatrics for lack of a better word of it, you know, is just so great. But I can remember as a little kid uh, going, I got to go to the theater and see Return of the Jedi. No and- way. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> and I try to do the math and I'm wondering if, cause I, I, I think I would have been too young. Maybe it, they re-released it in the theaters a year or two later. Cause I don't think I was like 
three. I think I was more like five. Well, well they used to let movies have a long run. That's true. Remember? That's like, true. E, like, yeah. like, I remember reading about how E.T. stayed in theaters for like two years. Yeah. I remember so, seeing E.T., yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it was, yeah, so it, I remember seeing it with my mom in theaters. And, and I, I remember talking about it, my mom going, they want to do one where you see Anakin and Obi as young men. Wouldn't that be crazy? <laughs> and this is like 1985 and me going, whoa, that I can distinctly remember my mom saying that, like, if he did, cause I was like, I want more. I want to see more. And my mom was like, well, actually, if they do more, they they're going to do three before. And I was like, what? That's crazy. So I, I had been thinking about those prequels since I was like five. Um, and uh yeah so it's just very i just i always remember my mom saying that in the theater like we're saying you know spending some quality time together and her telling me about that was where i learned like what the idea of a prequel or whatever and then you know for the longest time george lucas said they were never going to happen and then you know finally they did so i have fond fond memories of like i mean that whole getting to see that on an actual screen like at the time that during the 80s was was really awesome i'm glad that i i i, I have that memory and then an, another one, it's not one of like my favorite movies. It is a fun movie, I would say, but I, just the experience was a movie called The Wizard that had Fred Savage and Jenny Lewis in it. And it was about Nintendo. And uh, it was basically just a Nintendo commercial, <laughs> but I was obsessed with Nintendo at the time. And it was one of the first movies I got to go to alone. It was 1989, so I was nine years old. And my mom let me and one of the neighborhood kids go by ourselves. And so that's why I remember. And I think that kind of, in a way, maybe explains like a little bit of like the Nickelodeon appeal too. kids love kids never get to take the reins in their life. Kids lives are so you think their lives are so easy. But think about it. Everything you do down the food you eat, what you do, what you watch on TV is all determined by someone else. You never get to call the shot. So when you're a kid, getting to do your own thing is is awesome so i have fond memories of watching the wizard and the whole theater cinema experience and at the end when they dropped super mario brothers 3 that was like six months before the 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 game actually came i didn't think it was real i was like oh that's not a real those graphics are too good that's just made up for the movies i remember me afterwards getting in an argument with a kid at school because uh, I thought it was real, but another kid was like, no, dude. And, and I was like, I kind of see your point because there was some debate because the graphic, imagine that the graphics of Super Mario Brothers 3 looked too good. You couldn't believe it could actually happen. That's and so then funny. I remember when it, when it finally did come out, like six months later, it's like, it's true, all of it, you know, it was all real. <laughs> and then um, this is another one where, again, it's not one of my favorite movies, but it's one of my favorite cinematic experiences was watching the Incredible Hulk with Edward Norton and that post-credit scene where you're just oh, like, oh, that's yeah. pretty good. And you see Tony Stark. That's another one where, like you were saying, uh, like Adam was saying, that I don't understand how that happened. Maybe it was because it was still a, a while ago. Like, I had no idea that was going to happen. Like, And I, don't, I feel like nobody did. Like, you're watching it, and you're like, they're going to cross over the movies with the different superheroes are going to be in each other's movies. I don't know how they kept that quiet, but to see, cause I had seen Iron Man, you know, and then you're watching Incredible Hulk and to see that, that like you knew what they were going to do. The moment you saw that you're like, 
they're going to do the freaking Avengers. And I couldn't believe it. And I, I always remember seeing that because it just hit me out of like left field. Like I had it was like a sucker punch. I had no idea that moment was coming. Yeah. And uh, that moment I remember, but just, and even like just seeing the first Avengers movie, like yeah. ha- half the time you're watching it, you're like, this isn't real. Like you're just like, yes. this is some dream that I had. And then, uh, yeah. then you get that shot when they're in New York and it's all awesome. But yeah, no, just the, ma- the magic of movies. I just wanted to throw that in there because I just think it's always nice and uplifting to talk about. So thank you guys for indulging me on that. <laughs> of course. And, I hope we get to, I hope we get to go back to theater soon. You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I would say also really quickly, the for the force awakens, like going like, I remember because because I'm in the 501st Legion. And I remember that was the first time that I ever went with a group and trooped. And I remember they broke the internet. The ticket sales broke the internet and we had to drive up to go get the tickets from, you know, and then I remember Crazy. how excited everybody was. Now, I also remember going and, and trooping for Rise of Skywalker and it was not quite the same level of enthusiasm but that moment was magical because we watched the merit we did the marathon you know what i mean like and so it's like it was like it was funny because like 4 30 in the morning you're up there and you're just like okay we're doing this and we're mm-hmm. watching these movies all day and then you know you could just tell it was so cool too because like you know i was dressed as kylo ren and so and people going in People were like, oh, cool, whatever. You know what I mean? Because, like, really, there wasn't much we knew about the film. Right. did a good job at guarding it. And then when people came out and you saw somebody dressed as Ray or somebody dressed as, you know, like, like that was with the group and everybody was like, no way, this is amazing, blah, you know? And I was like, man. Oh, yeah. This probably was, like, one millionth of what it must have been like to be at, like, you know, like the, the, the you know, what, the Grauman, like, the Chinese theater whenever it first happened you know, in 1977, but, but you're right. Cinema, I hope it stays. And and I hope that the theaters are able to, to make it through, you know, because it's, it's important uh, because there are experiences that you just can't, you can't have at home, you know, Uh, you're not going to get those IMAX moments. Uh, It's it's just impossible. So uh, stay strong cinema uh, cinema uh film distributors as well as uh cinema houses keep doing it yeah because like when things become bigger than a movie like at that point like you're talking about like with star wars people dressed up people are all feeling the same thing together it's not a movie anymore this is a genuine movement or like you know you see that with like lord of the rings or harry potter or the avengers when things just become something big and to get to experience that together that can never be the same. Even though TVs are amazing now, you can have a big TV with a great sound system for so cheap compared to, you know, 20 years ago. But yeah, it, you can't, there's something to be said about when a movie just connects us like that. It's, it's, it's uh, unreal. Yeah, uh, I agree with everything that you guys are saying. And uh, <laughs> my, my, my final question, going back to the Orange Years, if the audience who watches the orange ears if you could have them take one thing away from this film what would it be i I think for me the thing that i would love for them to take away is you know to find out they you know you love all these shows they hold such a strong place in people's heart you know there's such a 
fond, deep nostalgia for these shows. And you might think that that's just because everybody is nostalgic for what was on the TV when they were a little kid. And, and, and I really hope they walk away knowing that's not the case. That the reason why these shows stay with you is because of some amazing people who really went the extra mile, that went a hundred extra miles to connect with kids and make something really beautiful and really amazing. And I hope that there's people that you didn't know their name before you watch the movie and after you watch it, you can say you're a huge fan of those people. That would be my hope. That would be what I want people to take away. Um, yeah, I hope that people will hand down these stories that have held up and deserve to be handed down to other generations. You know, you look at uh, not necessarily children. Well, yeah, some children's stories, you know, like that came before that, like, you know, like Watership Down or other, there are just some, or even, gosh, look at The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings or things like that, right? Like they came way before us, but they were, they're passed down. Uh, the Adventures of Pete and Pete, uh, Clarissa Explains It All, all of these shows are deserving of having their days in the sun again. And I hope that another generation and a generation after that finds them. And this is the perfect time to do it. Uh, and I also, I also hope what we talked about a lot, Scott and I always say is that uh, it's been a tough year for everybody. And if this can lift people up and put some smiles on faces, then we've, then we've hopefully done a good job. So I hope people take that away uh, the same way that they did anytime that they watch a Nickelodeon show is that they, they smile and they feel good and they have really fond memories and they can hand those memories off and share them with somebody else because that's what storytelling is all about. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I've thoroughly enjoyed interviewing you guys and talking with you about your film, The Orange Years, The Nickelodeon Story. Thank you so, so much for being on the show. It means the world to me and it means the world to just even like without the show, without the cameras, just talking to filmmakers about something that they're passionate about making is a passion of mine. And just thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for telling all the viewers just what it is you're making and why you're making it. And I, for one, cannot wait to get this and watch this. And um, also, right before we go, um, just to remind everybody, you can pre-order it on iTunes now. And I believe it was November 17th. It's available on Amazon Prime. That's right. Amazon. Yeah. Awesome. And um, bef right before we go, um, go ahead and tell the good people where um, they can find you and your adventures online. So I'm like the anti-social media guy. I just, I've never gotten into it. Uh, I have like some accounts, but they're not really something that I use. So if you want to talk to me or wh what I do use Instagram and Facebook for is for the orange year. So you can find, I don't even know how to say it. Is it just at the orange years? If you're on Instagram, like hashtag orange years at the orange years, you can find us. Yeah. Um, at the orange years. At the orange years. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, Facebook is um, the orange years. <laughs> so yeah, if you just look for the orange years, that's how you can get a hold of me if you, if you want to, or that we both check that. So uh, I would appreciate it if people would follow us because we are doing some cool stuff. We're going to be doing some giveaways now that the movie's coming out. 
we're going to be throwing up some behind the scenes pictures. So it's a great way to follow us um, and, you know, just see what we're doing, you know, cause we want to, we want to do a lot of cool things with this project. So just follow us on there. You can win some cool stuff. You can see some cool stuff. So the orange ears. Yeah. And the story and the story doesn't end at the release either. So a lot of the stories that we anticipate telling are going to continue. Yeah. Uh, additionally, like, you know, like Scott said, now's the time, like we're doing giveaways of, you know, autographed items from Keenan and Kel, Mark Summers. We had some stuff from Melissa Joan Hart that we were giving away. Uh, we have tons of other mm -hmm. things. And um, if you want to talk about your stories, contact us, right? We are storyteller fans. And, you know, the way that we became uh, able to accomplish what we did is by um, talking and listening and also sharing our passion with somebody else, right? So for you, Dalton, you know, as a filmmaker and anybody else that uh, is, is, you know, awesome enough and kind enough to listen to this, like, we want to hear what you love and it doesn't have to just be Nickelodeon. So hit us up at, at the orange years. Um, I'm on Instagram uh, at Adam Sweeney, uh, you know, and uh, we are always willing to talk pop culture and uh, just, you know, want to support everybody else just the same way that we've been supported because that's how the stories get out there. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Again, thank you guys so much for being on the show and thank you for everyone for watching and uh, we'll see you next time.